right, everybody. Welcome to this week's Learning the Tropes. I'm Erin. And I'm Clayton. And I'm the romance novel veteran. And I'm the virgin. And we're your hosts. Um, So we have a very special episode today because it is our first author interview, which we are super excited about. Mm -hmm. And... um, and we didn't read a book for this one, which is good, too. Or actually, I did. Yes. We read Crashing the A-List. Mm-hmm. Um, but we aren't going to spoil it because it just came out this month. So if you haven't had the opportunity to read it, still listen to the episode. We aren't going to talk any spoilers. Normally, we do spoil. Um, so uh, without further ado, I'm going to introduce our guest. So Summer is an author of rom-coms who prances through life like a Disney cartoon that says the F word a lot. She lives in uh, Bellevue, Washington, where she is a stay-at-home mom to two scampy kids, a wife to an amazingly understanding husband, herder of rescue critter menagerie, and collector of life-size celebrity cardboard cutouts, which Clayton wants uh, some questions about. Um, <laughs> when not... Uh, uh, and then she is the author of Crashing the A-List, which is her second novel following her first uh, novel, her debut, uh, The Awkward Path to Getting Lucky. Hi. Hi. Welcome, Thank you so Summer. much for having me. Of course. We're so happy you're here. It is a pleasure to be here. Yeah. So um, you are in New York. I am. Far, far from home. I know. You traveled all the way across the country. <laughs> on a jet plane and everything. Whoa. I know. We were like, how does this stay in the air? I just, you know. <laughs> it's too big. It shouldn't fly. <laughs> in the air. It's, it's a lot. Are you okay yeah. with flying? Yes. <laughs> as long as I'm not like constricted. Like I need aisle seats. So if mm. I need to like jump up in fear for some reason, <laughs> I can. That's me too. I can't be restricted yes. in those small areas. Oh, It's very yeah. claustrophobic at that point. Yeah, and so you're out here for um, the Romance Writers of America conference. Yes, always a good time. Yeah, so how have you been enjoying it? How have you been enjoying New York? Um, I always love coming and staying in New York. I, <laughs> the whole Times Square location is is a, is a bit of, of a lot. Um, but no, I, I love it so much. I get to go and see my friends who have books coming out and wave pom-poms wildly, you know, and cheer way too loud, but still... Um, just get to see all the authors that I know from the internets and then get to hug them in real life. So that's cool. So that's like, you know, you feel like you know them, Mm -hmm. but you haven't actually physically met them and then you get to see them at the thing and it's must be so exciting. Oh, I am the worst. I will straight up tackle hug somebody (laughs) like to the ground that I've never met in person before. And it's not until we hit the floor. I'm like, wait, is it okay if I hug you? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I'm awful, but yeah, no, I just, I get so excited. And like, there was somebody I've known for almost 10 years on Twitter, just from book stuff. And I finally got to meet her just by chance. We were walking through the same restaurant at the same time. And I apologize to all the diners. You tagged them onto the dessert cart. I really, really did. Cause like I had cake in my hand cause we were leaving <laughs> with my goodie bag and we got back to the hotel. The cake didn't make it. Oh, oh no. Man. It's okay. Well. R.I.P. that cake. Yeah. The cake uh, yeah. was sacrificed in the name of friendship. It, it was a worthy worthy sacrifice yes <laughs> um and so most recently you were telling us that you were at the strand bookstore which is a big favorite of both of ours oh, we love the strand oh yeah. my god the strand is honestly my favorite place in new york every time i come here i take a day and i just go sit in the rare books room at the strand and just smell the books because <laughs> nothing smells like those books those 
old, beautiful books. Like my parents were born in the th- like 30s and 40s, and my grandpa was born in the 1800s. Oh wow! And so we would have like you know like the old school books, like when there was like six kids and just like a little wooden building, and nothing smelled and felt like those books. So. Yeah, big fan of the Rare Books Room, which is where the event was. And again, I almost died just because. Anyway. They recently built a staircase to it, which it used to just be elevator access. Their elevators scare me a little. I'm not going to lie to you. I kind of prefer the stairs. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's nice. Yes. Uh, Yeah. Good points of egress are always important. (laughs) (laughs) I am much. I'm very team elevator. But the Strand ones are just a little... I mean, I, I would die in an elevator at the Strand. Like, if that's the way I got to go, I'd feel pretty good but about it. But that's not a bad way we to go. We would all be, you know? Yeah. It's very on brand, I think. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, authors should be, you know, uh, die at bookstores or crushed by books. I agree completely. It's- yeah. That's how I personally... Because producer Patty uh, helped me move recently, and he still is mad at me for the amount of books. It was all just boxes of books. And but- I'll tell him what books sometimes occasionally i'll just throw in like oh i had two copies of this book in that box and he'll want to punch me he's so (laughs) mad right now but he can't say anything this is why i'm doing it (laughs) no like if you don't throw out at least two of your friends backs by the massive amount of books that you have when you're moving like how are you even living is it even life yeah exactly you're not a real reader oh god yeah we're gonna go into like like well, the, the rules. The reason I have two of them is uh, is so that I can give one of it's my favorite book, so I can give one copy to somebody else. Yeah, I you know kind of I mean? do that too. He doesn't get that because yep. he had to carry them. I'm so sorry <laughs> for your back. You did you did Odin's good work by moving the books. So. <laughs> yeah, I when when I was in college, I was a big reader as I am right now. Mm-hmm. And one of my good friends, I had just finished 100 Years of Solitude. And I was like, guys, this book is amazing. So I was telling my friend about it. I was like, you have to read it. It's so good. It's so good. He's like, okay, can I borrow it? And so I gave it to him. He went to a girl he had a crush on, completely plagiarized everything I told him, pretend he had read the book, and then gave it to her. And then she left it on a bus. Oh, my gosh. And I was like... Oh my god! I don't Isn't know this guy, but he is thing. dead to me. <laughs> like, Bad people. And he was like, "I'm wow. gonna buy you another copy." I'm like, "But I don't read that copies, did I, Seth?" So oh, it's not the same. It is not the same. No. It is not the same as the one that you read for the first time. Oh my gosh! Oh yeah, yeah, that's a bad, bad man. Because there's some Scandinavian word or something for like you know how after you read a book it has grown. Yeah, and it's like that energy that gets you put into the book that makes it grow, and it's like, yeah, you can't get that back. Yeah, and you and it has. It's got that imbued like spiritual connection that you made with these characters and these mm-hmm. moments, and I'm really uptight about it. That's why I don't ever loan out my books, but I'll loan out the extra copies of my books that I have for that exact purpose. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Got to have two copies of your favorite books. It's Just got to absolutely. We also were getting rid of books, and we had them all in boxes, and Clayton came over, and he was like, oh, can I see what you got? And Pat from the other room goes, he's not allowed any more books. <laughs> well, also, I think you were going to send them to – it was you were going to send them to a women's prison or something, right? Yeah. Is that, yeah, yeah. So I was like, I'm not going to take books from a women's prison. Like, I can go to the Strand. I yeah. have freedom. You know? Let them Don't have rub it in, books. but yeah. Well, no, but what I'm saying is, yeah. you know, like, I'm not going to steal books that are going to go to a good cause. Mm-hmm. You yeah, know? that would be a little bad book karma. See, right that's there, I knew. I think. But you wanted to just see it. Anyway. I wanted to just take a whole box and go home and figure out what was in there by surprise. It's but... just so hard. You see books and then you get the happy feeling and you're like, I went to hug them and take them. I know. Give them a good home. That's how I have so many rescue critters. It's the same thing. Exactly. Books and animals. I have a problem. <laughs> 
Um, and so this Crashing the A-List, this is your second book. It is my second book. So what inspired you to write your first book, to go from, like, obviously a voracious reader to a writer? Um, well, I've, I mean, I've been writing. I went to my first writer's conference when I was 12. I signed up for oh, it, and I didn't tell my mom. And we lived in Indiana and this really, really tiny town. And one weekend I was kind of like, hey, mom can you drive me to Indianapolis to this hotel? And she had so many questions. <laughs> like she, she needed to know things, but she actually, she took me and she sat in the back of the writer's conference and we had a really good time. Um, and at the time I was also doing like acting commercials and stuff. And so I kind of just did that through high school. But once I got to college, I was like, yep, I know exactly how like I would like my life to go. And after my husband and I got married, we had the discussion that, I wanted to be a stay-at-home mom and a writer. That was my thing. But I wanted to, like, have the kids, then the career. So, you know, I waited till they were old enough to not, like, stick their tongue in a light socket or something. And, yeah. like, you know, we had some self-sufficiency. And then I dove in really hard and got an agent. And it Well, you know, here I am. So... That's amazing. I was like, did any of that make sense? But, yeah, I just... No. I, it was very great... structured of this is what I'm going to do. I think there is something for that, though, of sort of being like, I have this path in my mind and I'm going to make these decisions to make that happen. And then going and doing it that I do feel like not to get too woo woo, but I do feel like the universe meets you there. I agree. Like if I feel like if I had tried earlier, it wouldn't have worked. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I I take my job as a mother very seriously. Like I wanted to just be invested in that and only that for those, you know, early years with them. And then once they went off to school, then, Hey, now I have time during the day and, you know, weekends and stuff when my husband can keep them alive. And, um, yeah, but it, it worked out so great. So I got to throw myself into both things that I wanted to be in, you know, a timely manner. That's fantastic. And so were you always a romance reader, rom-com reader, or is that? Um, honest, <laughs> my grandpa, uh, he was known in our very, very tiny town that had all of 3,000 people in it uh, because he read every book in the library when he was young. And so he challenged me to do the same, somehow not realizing that in like I don't know, 70 years, the libraries had gotten bigger. <laughs> yeah. We have like electronic aspects of it. Yeah. Uh, no, oh, no, no, no. I'm, I'm much more of an old okay. than that. Yeah. The, the internet wasn't a thing until like my senior year of high school. So, well, maybe sophomore. I'm not real sure. So old. Um, <laughs> but no, I, I, I met the challenge. And by the time I went off to middle school, I had read every book in the public library in town. And just because I am that kind of a jerk, I read every book in the school library, too. So I could be like, ha. <laughs> you don't have access to this. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I, I, I was like, OK, proud of me now. What's up? Yeah. So that's that's I, I and every Sunday um, my parents made me go to church with my grandparents. And every Sunday he would give me a new book and he never cared what age I was so when I was six my favorite book was Moby Dick because that's what he was giving me and I was so fascinated by it and I love that so I read all the classics and did all the things and I think the first time I picked a genre that I liked reading was uh Stephen King Dean Koontz um and that's basically what I read through high school and then college Bridget Jones Bridget Jones came in and changed everything and yeah, so I've I've been obsessed with the idea of 
I want to make books that make people happy and swoon and laugh. I always say if somebody laughs once while reading my book, I did my job. So. And there is something, too, about, um, especially with kids, I think, like, giving them books. Because it's also, especially if you're a grandfather who had such a love of writing, of reading and possibly writing, to say, like, this is something I love. And so I want to impart that love on my granddaughter, who I also love. It's just so powerful and so sweet. And it's such a, um, yeah, I just love that so much. And then obviously it meant so much to you. That it you- really did. I, I mean, I want to believe that I always would have been drawn towards because I have in my head, you know, the the things that I see that become books one day. But I don't think I would have been so determined like, yes, this is what I'm going to be when I grow up. And there accept no subs- substitutes without, you know, him indoctrinating me in that way. But and if you're going to indoctrinate a kid, that is the way to go. You yeah. know, Moby so, Dick. God, you learned a lot Moby about Dick. whales. Yeah, I did. I just... Like, I obviously wasn't understanding the metaphors and stuff, but... Who does? Right, God. <laughs> Melville, uh, he has... Yeah, anyway, but it just... As a kid, I, I could not get enough of it. And, you know, Hunchback of Notre Dame and, and mm. the Treasure Island. And I just... I loved it. I loved it so much. Yeah, you got to model behavior for kids, too. Like, to see people read, to see your parents read, to see your grandfather read. Those are important things. I think a lot of people see their parents read Mm -hmm. and so they might be voracious readers you know to to be but they don't see that behavior so it doesn't seem normal to them so it's very important i think for people to read in front of their kids or you know things like that so they know like oh wow you know mom reads books that's cool i can do that too yeah um the rule i have in my family you know like the kids are always asking for things for toys for this for that and i say the one thing i will never say no to is if there's a book you want i'll get it I don't care. You want 10 books? I'll get you 10 books, you know? And and I'm very, you know, strict about the other stuff, but it's like books. You can have books. Like, we're actually in a place right now where we're having to get, like, four new bookshelves because <laughs> we've all gotten a bit out of control. But also, I'm a big believer in not um, shaming the different types of books that, you know, graphic novels are books comic books are books and if that's what you want to read my son is eight years old he prefers graphic novels because the visuals hold his attention he has adhd and he just powers through them he can just read multiple books per day because it keeps that part of his brain busy enough that he can focus on the story and i love that my daughter on the other hand she can power through a giant novel and she doesn't need that so whatever their needs are i buy the books for them that's that's how my parents used to be too i used to go to the bookstore all the time and be like between two books choosing between two books was like oh my gosh what am which one and what if i regret i don't get that and then my mom would be like you can get both and they'd be like both (laughs) both (laughs) and she's like she she would be like oh my god he wants to buy books why i would never say no to that but in my mind i'm like she's gonna say no that's excessive (laughs) and whatever but i got excessive you're six but i got out of toys very quickly because then Mm -hmm. i turned to books and you know my mom would be like when we buy toys one you know one toy at a time whatever occasionally but with books it was pretty much how many i could grab which 
just to this day, it just is so great to be able to have that. And I'm that way now. I'm like (laughs) psychopath when it comes to I'm always buying books. That's my biggest thing that I uh, buy. Uh, That's where all my money goes to (laughs) pretty much, right? right? Yeah. Anything I make from writing books, it goes back into buying books. So it's very (laughs) symbiotic. You're keeping the industry going so that you can have a job. Exactly. It's perfect. I would like it if people would return the favor and buy my books too. That'd be cool. Um, and speaking of your books, why don't you let us know a little bit about Crashing the A-List, sort of what inspired it. <laughs> I heard you had a unique writing process that I really would love to talk about. So, um, Okay. Uh, we, for this book, this book came about because one day I had a migraine and my doctor gave me the medicine, the one medicine that is on my medical file that I cannot take. Oh, no. Because I have, I'm allergic to some kind of preservative in it. And he gave it to me and it didn't work. So an hour later, I got more of it. And then my heart just kind of went bloop and I had a mild heart attack. And so I'm lying in the hospital and I'm extremely doped up, hooked up to all these machines. And I had this dream about Benedict Cumberbatch and storage units. And I was like half awake and I got my notes app out and I wrote it down because I thought it would be fun to remember it later. And then long time later, I pick it up and I was like, oh, this could be a book. Could it? And then I went to my agents and they're like, dear God, please write this book about <laughs> somebody who is definitely not Benedict Cumberbatch, who used to work as a male escort when he was 1920. So um, the book now is um, about a woman named Clara who uh, was laid off in her job and publishing because this book is essentially like like abuse all the tropes bingo like you'll find them all in there um well so, we love that yes. yeah right like that's I, our people for this. <laughs> yeah, I, I played right into your hands <laughs> it's been very good um but yeah so she got laid off um after her uh, house was bought out by an evil e-retailer named Alcatraz which is definitely not based on any real business. I laughed nope. very hard because I'm like so thinly veiled and such an insight into how she feels about a certain company <laughs> named after a river. I'm really really subtle like yes. that's that's my brand <laughs> um, but yeah so she's laid off so she's living on her little brother's couch and you know he's got a successful job he's about to get married and she's sleeping on his ugly ugly couch and has nothing and so she takes a job from uh his fiance's uncle to clean out abandoned or repossessed storage units and she comes across one that was run or that was owned by an escort service um back in like the 80s and 90s and she's sorting through all the paperwork and she finds the escort resume of a 19 year old kid who is now a very famous, well-respected Shakespearean actor <laughs> named uh, Caspian Tittleswick. Again, not at all Benedict Cumberbatch, <laughs> I swear. Just thinly, thin, or like, yeah, very subtle. Yes, yeah, so subtle, <laughs> like a gun. Um, and so uh, she debates selling this information because, like, hey, it could get her off of her brother's couch. Like, he'd do a lot for her life. But then, like, the guilt of even having that flash of a thought... Um, she uses her best friend's connections in publishing to get the contact information for him. So she uh, unintentionally, very drunkenly, tries to let him know that she's got the information, she's going to destroy it, he's totally safe, which he naturally interprets as she is trying to blackmail him. And so he shows up and, in a zippy twist, starts to blackmail her. And so it's it's... You know, they hate each other, and then hijinks and sexual tension ensue. So, 
Wonderful. I love it. There you go. What does Benedict Cumberbatch think of your book? Have you sent him a copy? I don't know. My publicist actually mentioned trying to do that, and I was like, I'm going to get sued. I'm going to be on the news. And, yeah, um, I hope if he ever comes across it, he takes it as the compliment that it was intended to be. Um, It's funny. I just knew him. I was always a big fan of him as an actor, but I never was, like, crushing on Benedict Cumberbatch. Like, I don't know, on Sherlock in particular, I always thought, like, he can act through, like, the tiniest twitch of his eyes. And I just thought that was so impressive. I, you know, was a theater major in college, so that was always good stuff for me. And then I had this dream, and I was like, ooh, Benedict Cumberbatch. So, yeah, it was all meant to be like, look, he's a great guy, which he doesn't actually read that way for most of the book, I realize. Please don't sue me. (laughs) (laughs) He is, because it's not about him. It's really not. It's not. I mean, it's about Caspian. It is about Caspian Tittleswick. I mean, night and day here, people. (laughs) Yeah, there's no correlation. Mm -mm. Nothing. I do think Benedict Cumberbatch, from his interviews and what I've seen of him, has a very good sense of humor about things. I mean, he would do those photos where people say he looks like an otter, and then he would do... Like the same pose as the otter. <laughs> yes. He did that on um, what Graham is the, Norton. Graham Norton, right? Yep. So, I mean, and Graham Norton's all about That's having fun show. like that. But uh, I, th- I, I don't know. Listen, I'm not going to say that uh, you're not going to get sued. <laughs> I just because <laughs> I'm not a lawyer. But what I'll say is, I do think that it's it's enough of a uh, it's enough of a departure from his public persona. And also, he seems to have a good sense of humor. In all fairness, um, the the dream was about him. But when I was trying to write the character, I tried to do sort of an amalgamation of like a lot of the really, you know, top notch British actor folk. And so there's like a little Tom Hiddleston and some David Tennant. I mean, he's Scottish, but um, oh, Tennant will definitely sue you. Yeah, no, he's very litigious. (laughs) He is. He's. uh, I actually got to meet him last year, and he's not. Yeah. He's so sweet. No, Aww. I love David yeah. Tennant. I think he'd get a kick out of that. Um, you know, Matt Smith, just all of them just yes. kind of put together. And then this dude that I created in my head and smushed it all together and got the character. But yeah. Cumberbatch is the one that inspired it all. And I really, really hope he believes everything I just said because I just realized at one point I really do refer to the character as a bipedal lizard. <laughs> <laughs> he has a unique look. He really does. And he's handsome, though. He is very handsome. It's got that, like sort of alien, like very like sexy alien kind of thing. I don't know. Yes. I think Listen, all of we've his... read sexy alien books. Oh. So we know. That's we, true. Yeah, Romance delves. We have yeah. something called the 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 Vectal scale. Vectal. Yeah, and yeah. it's about like Vectal was one of the first alien, well, was the first alien um that we did in one of our books, and it's like who's uh from Ice Planet Barbarians. Yeah. So, oh, I thought you would just know cuz yeah. that's in the culture so much. Um <laughs> No, I uh, shame on me. (laughs) But it's like uh, whether uh, an alien is sexier than Bechtel or not as sexy as Bechtel because he was the first one we read. So, but I would say, if we're talking about Cumberbatch, he's sexier than Bechtel, definitely. If he was an alien, oh, I'd say he's very, very high. Yeah, he's got to be right on the high on the Bechtel scale. I would say. I mean, even if even if you never saw him, like Uh if you just heard him, yeah, like. I'm really in it for the voice and the cheekbones. I'm not going to lie to either Wait, of you right now. What was now. the documentary that he narrated that he couldn't say penguin? penguins? Penguins. I don't know what it was. But every once in a while, I accidentally say it the wrong way. Because I did a lot of research, like watching like Graham Norton show and stuff like that. And they had a segment on that. And just penguins. <laughs> penguins. And it was just so freaking funny to me. Oh, God. 
tell us a little bit about your writing process. Oh, my writing process So is... do you normally force a heart attack on yourself, have a hazy dream, <laughs> yeah. check the notes app after? Is this a flatliner oh, situation? Wait, I'm sorry, is, is that asking. not the way everyone writes their books? <laughs> Am I, mean, I doing it wrong? Yeah, I'm worried as if you become a very prolific writer, it could start. Well, Daniel Steele does it, and she's in rough shape right now. <laughs> yeah. Isn't she the one she eats like one piece of chocolate a day and like that's it? Um, <laughs> Probably. She also yeah. writes on a book... Uh, being on a desk made out of all of her books on the typewriter mm-hmm. yeah no i read that that article and i was like <laughs> she made my way look much more safe <laughs> oh, yeah, she's like, i write 21 hours a day that's normal and it's like jesus Daniel still is a baller yeah she's, she's... amazing <laughs> I, oh god no i uh i bowed to the master on that no i i can't do that um no my my way is is very bizarre i will admit and probably not healthy uh not Heart attacks, heart attacks notwithstanding, because <laughs> don't be like your anti-summer kids. Um, but no, uh, I have this place. I have this place in my head that kind of came about when I was 12. I was talking about the bullying thing. That's where I would go. I, I created stories, and I would keep them in the treehouse. Not to... I swear, I came up with this first, so Sherlock stole this from me. Um, but in his in the show, he has a mind palace that he goes to. That's what my treehouse is. That's mm-hmm. where I keep all my stories. So... I will think of something like the dream or most of them actually start from dreams now that I'm thinking about it. Um, but And then little bits and pieces will come up when I'm like going for a walk or in the shower and I'll just stuff it in the treehouse. And then all of a sudden I am ready to write the book. I, it's not fully formed or anything, but I've got enough, you know, beginning, middle, and like the parts that have like, I don't know how to explain it. I'm a terrible author. Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> um, just the things that need to happen to get from the beginning to the end, like those main points. And then I sit down and I ask my husband to keep the kids alive and the house from burning down for (laughs) a few days. And then I tell my children, mommy does not exist now. And she will see you when she comes out of this. And I write, I write, I don't know, God, like 20, 25,000 words a day. And in four days I come out uh, the uh, Crashing Nihilist was technically written in four and a half days, in all fairness. Um, and the manuscript is complete. And I wish, again, my editor was here to back me up on this because it sounds so unbelievably rude to say, but, and they're clean. I mean, they're clean. That's what I turn in. And it's funny because I'll tweet about it. Um, I call them fizzathons because I'm fizzy girl on Twitter. Nobody could see my air quotes just now, but they were there. Um, <laughs> and that and is all, you're, literally your name on Twitter. It yeah. is literally my name on Twitter. I mm-hmm. like it. It was my accidental college email that I signed up for Twitter with and that's how I became known as Fizzy Girl but yeah so um her people are always like god I hope that's not something she's turning into you and then I turn it in and she goes and she's like neener neener it was clean and Mm -hmm. so I feel good about that but yeah I don't I don't smell good at the end of this and I've usually lost like 10 pounds because I only eat uh Twizzlers and Jelly Bellies and coffee to keep me alive and but it gets done and so that way, like, I'm only taking, like, these chunks of time away from my family to do it. It's really weird. I know. But. No, I mean, I think it, it's so funny because it makes so much sense in because you have the family that you love and that they're such a high priority. So your instinct is to get this out yep. so that you can go back to them which I think is like a really beautiful romantic thing. Like <laughs> you're not like, well, mommy's going to Tahiti for six months. So yeah, uh, take care. Yeah. You're just like getting this done. And then, you know, I think that's really, really, really sweet, actually. Well, thank you. And I mean, 
literally no judgment whatsoever to anybody else's writing process. I'm not saying that, oh, I care about my family more, so this is what I do. No. It's no. just, you know, that's sort of what works for us, and, and that's just the way my brain works and how it happens. And so it, I believe it, it started because I didn't, I didn't like sort of the way that it felt taking, you know, little bits of time here and there to write and it would sort of interrupt our days the way we had things going. Because, again, I had my kids um, like I had planned since I was a teenager. I had kids first so I could focus entirely on them. And then I started my writing when they were a little more self-sufficient and in school and just did not like doing that. So the four-day thing, like twice a year, totally ditched my family and stay in the bedroom or in my office, wherever, and write a book. And so how long is the process between having, like, that germ of an idea? Do you sit on it for, like, the six months in between the writing and you're just sort of, like, noodling it as you go throughout your day? You, it doesn't sound like you outline or anything like that. You just no. sit down and you write straight from first page to the end. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's – and I, for the, I have no idea what's going to happen. I know where I would like to end up. I have no idea what these characters are going to do. They do wild shit. And I'm just <laughs> trying to keep up and keep my fingers from breaking. And it's I think it's neat because even I don't know what's going to happen in the book. So as I'm writing it, it's like I get to read it for the first time. It's really weird. And I will go back and read it later and, and not have any memory of writing out the stuff, <laughs> so which you, is always fun. Will you be halfway through and be like, no, don't. You're not going to. Yes. You're not. <laughs> Oh, my God. I can't believe you did that. I actually, and I had this one to where my husband came in to see if I was okay. But during this book, at one point, I literally yelled at my computer, Caspian, you are a dick. And and then the more, like, intense or frustrating or whatever it is, I start to run my fingers through my hair. And when I look like Gary Busey, that's when my husband literally will come and take the laptop away from me. Like, you got to get some sleep. So. Yeah, you look like Nick Nolte's uh, police photo. We can't have this. Oh, and I have to have a movie playing, like a specific movie that I know very well. Oh, interesting. Playing in the background, and it's different for each book. And there's one that I have to watch when it's writing time and one that I have to do when it's like editing, revising, stuff like that. And for this book, for no reason whatsoever, I have no idea why, for the writing part, it was Fantastic Beasts. And then for the editing, it was Princess Diaries. Mm-hmm. No idea why. So weird. And it has to just be on a loop the whole time. So this brings us to, because I am very much into movies. Not oh. that Aaron isn't, but I'm a big movie guy. I have a movie podcast. We have this in common. Yes. Well, not the podcast, but the but, thing. Yeah. yeah. So uh, obviously movies, very important to you. Uh, like, um, have you always loved movies, like, concurrent with your love of books? Was it books and movies? Were these things both, like, intertwined? Oh, absolutely. Like, loves? I, I, I mean, I lived in the middle of nowhere. Um, my parents are agoraphobic, so we never had people over. We never went out. I mean, we were miles from the nearest people. All I had were books <clears> and <throat> things that I saw on TV. Um, this is sort of a tragic origin story, but um, my mom ran a daycare because it was, like, the 80s, Reaganomics, like, poor people in the small towns with factories and stuff and um she had to sit me like the the other parents were like we don't want to pay you you know just to play with your kid all day and so I had to sit in a pack and play in front of a tv all day until all the kids were gone and pbs was on and like mr rogers taught me to read but then at noon it would switch to the bbc and I just, God, I love those movies, like the, the Shakespearean plays they would put on and everything. And I swear, like, it sounds like it was really sad, but, I mean, it taught me a lot. And also, 
I spoke with a thick British accent until <laughs> I started public school, and it still comes out right now. Like if I'm around somebody with an accent, or I've had a cocktail, which mm-hmm. is real weird. Um, but yeah, so movies, movies, books, words, anything. Um, I just I'm obsessed with it. I'm obsessed with seeing these stories, these lives of other people, and studying just why would they do what they did, and you know, like the whole kind of friendless thing kept up and because I was a weirdo I wanted to act and I wanted to write books it's all I ever wanted like when I was a kid and a teenager and and you know my school it was you played football if you were a boy or you were a cheerleader and got pregnant if you were a girl I'm dead serious like they were throwing baby showers every time at school like the teachers were marrying the students like this was not like your regular kind of school it was a small town school and so it was my escape it was my family I mean it all of these stories I just they just mean so much to me in every possible way and did you always gravitate towards rom-coms and and movies like that like the romantic movies I I I love rom-coms I love rom-coms with my entire soul however my favorite genre is action movies I love action movies. I mean, I'm the same. I mean, I love them both. I love yeah. rom-coms and action movies. That's yep, the things same. that I would get at the video store. Absolutely. I, I don't even know if I ever rent other stuff. I mean, back in high school, I was kind of one of those like, oh, I must watch every movie pretentious person. But no, I love rom-coms and action movies. That's basically what I got. Yeah. I'd be like, Die Hard with a Vengeance and uh, While You Were Sleeping. Oh, my God. That's <laughs> literally like I would alternate those two back <laughs> Yeah. Back in college, like all day while I was doing homework. That's great. Die Hard 3 is the second best Die Hard movie. Completely agree. Yeah. Yep. Oh, God, that movie's so good. And I have to go home and watch it. Yeah. <laughs> have to. Have to, like required by law. Now, yeah. It was originally a script that wasn't a Die Hard that they adapted to really? a Die Hard. It I... was called Simon Says. That's what the script was because you know how they do all the riddles and stuff? Yeah. That's It was a script that they were like, we want to do another Die Hard movie. So what they did was they adapted. They took that script and then they just put John McClane in it. I'm actually ashamed that I didn't know that already. <laughs> that is yeah. cool. Yeah. Did you write – did you read like an oral history of Die Hard 3? No, nah, it's just something I know. Mm. I picked it up somewhere. <laughs> oh, look at him all suave. Like, just, you know, heard it I on the streets. Yeah. Um, talk to us a little bit about the cardboard cutouts. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. Uh, so I collect cardboard cutouts, life-size cardboard cutouts. <laughs> I have a really large collection now. Um, I'm going to be <laughs> very honest with you. This started, uh, my husband was responsible, I swear. Um, back when Twilight first came out, he thought it would delight me to get me a life-size cardboard cutout of Edward Cullen. And I came home one day. It <laughs> Did it delight you or terrify you? I was I was pleased, but then I was even more pleased because even though he'd bought it, he'd like walk through the room and see this angry like vampire dude <laughs> and he freaking dropped to the floor. It just scared the hell out of him like every time. And I'm like, you did this. You so, brought it home. Yes. Yeah. And so that would be terrifying. It was amazing. Oh God, it brought me so much joy. Um <laughs> and then uh, I didn't get another one until um, Avengers, and I, I'm very into the character of Hawkeye from the Matt Fraction comics. Like, I'm just obsessed with them, and I will speak their gospel until the end of my days. Um, but the Hawkeye one had him, like, actually stare, like, staring very angrily with, like, a bow and arrow, and the arrows pulled back. And uh, when we went to uh, Disney World as a family, we had somebody come in house. And every time he'd walk by this room, there was a guy like pointing an arrow at him, like ready to go. And he would scream. 
creep and he would like dive behind the wall and I'm like you were there for a week how did that keep happening (laughs) it's our instincts I guess like you just people have instincts if they don't if they recognize a human form Mm -hmm. and especially if it's in like a you know in an action pose action pose Uh, I mean, Colin's probably just chilling, right? He's just like standing there looking handsome. He he is, but with like that angry glare and, you know, that brooding (laughs) Edward look, um, which is why I think he might have the Batman thing down, the brooding guy. Oh, Um, yeah, absolutely. Robert Pattinson's going to be the next Batman. Oh, he is? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, that was just announced. It's a little scandalous, but honestly, I've got high hopes. But yeah, so I have a huge cardboard cutout collection. Um, I have OCD and... Focal points are very helpful, visual focal points. And my cardboard cutouts are always of characters that I love. And it's one of those things where it's, and this is kind of taking it to the weird place, but I feel safer having those around. It's like, you know, if you have Captain America within eyesight, it sort of like makes you feel calmer. Like, hey, it doesn't matter what happens, Cap's here. And it's just a subconscious kind of thing. Um, I didn't even realize why I was doing it for a long time. I just realized I felt better with them. So I just started collecting them. And now I have a great deal of them. A lot. I mean, like when I did my book launch at a bookstore, like I did not have to search or shop for uh, Benedict Cumberbatch cutouts to bring because, <laughs> you know, I've got like the Sherlock and the Doctor Strange. And, you know, when he played, uh, I always call it Cumbercon in the Star Trek Into the oh, Darkness. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah. So I, I I've got so so many. I'm t- maybe seventy now. Oh know. my gosh! Yeah. How do you where how do you get them? Um, I Amazon sometimes oh. is good, but uh, my favorite place to get them from is actually this place in England called Star Stills. Um, they ship them like overnight, which is bizarre. And if you buy them like three at a time, then the shipping is all the same price. But if you buy one, it's like crazy shipping. So, um, I, so three at a time. Yeah, they're feeding your addiction. Money. They exactly. know what they're doing. They <laughs> right. know what they're doing with that. They do. They really do. But it's free shipping in England, so the whole problem is is that I don't live in England to be mm-hmm. able to just get them all the time. But yeah, so um, but I mean, like, there's stores. There's a mall um, not far from our house in in Washington where they've just got them standing out in the hallway, and I'll pick one up and oh, that's <laughs> it. But yeah, I've got use the HOV lane on the way home. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yep. Actually, I could get away with that. <laughs> thinking about it. But no, I love them. I, I, I'm going to say Marvel is probably the milieu that I have expanded the most on with the cutouts. Um, my husband now has cutouts. Uh, he always says that uh, where we live, it's like living in a Bob Ross painting. So there is actually a Bob Ross, like like looking out the window so it looks like he's painting like because he's got his paint tray and the so picture funny. so it's like he's painting like outside the window so you can order a, uh, a cardboard stand up uh, or standee are they called standees or standees I think yeah. is the official term of I should Bob Ross yes but oh my god do you know what's so great about the Bob Ross one it's got a voice box so when you walk by him he says like really inspirational things to you like happy accident like, it's, it's a fluffy little cloud happy little trees and I'm just like oh Bob Ross it's so soothing and not at all creepy to everyone who comes to our house I swear well you're never alone I that's know. the thing is you're never alone exactly I mean I'm a writer and a stay-at-home mom I don't get out and see people a lot especially with both my kids you know 12 and 8 now it's like I, I need the company you know mm. I need somebody to yell at when I'm in day three of writing a goddamn book of just like I haven't spoken to another human so yeah like the Harley Quinn cut out beside me like can give me a lot of input 
Yeah. <laughs> she starts talking to you day three. Yeah, that, well, Bob Ross actually does say things, so when Harley starts talking, I don't yeah. notice. It's kind of like, okay, yeah, this is right. This is fine. This all seems legit. And, you know, I've got Valkyrie because Tessa Thompson is my wife, and someday oh. we will be together, and I'm really excited about it. She is amazing. Oh, my God. She should be in every movie. We talk about this on our podcast, the movie podcast. It's just like... Every movie, Tessa Thompson. Yeah, just it's some part. It doesn't, you know, like, main part, yeah, if yeah. she has time, but just walk through. Like, she could play Batman, and it would oh. be right. You know what I mean? 100%. She could play Batman. Oh, God. Oh, Tessa. Yeah. Sorry. yeah. I really should have put, like, a thank you to Star Stills on the acknowledgments of my book. <laughs> I think about it. Mm-hmm. Now, is there any juice in an idea for a romance, a rom-com book, where it's a standee that comes to life? Like mannequin, like mannequin, but, but it's a standee. Yeah, we just want to like a quick thank you if this happens. I mean, I could do that. <laughs> like, I mean, you have four days, right? I do. I mean, <laughs> you know, I give me a day or two to recover from the whole conference week, and exactly. I got you. Um, but now all I can think of is Tessa coming off my wall. So yeah, I could do the thing. That'd be a great book. Yeah, it would. We'll have you back. Yeah. I'm sorry, I'm just, I'm really into this vision right now. No, Are you going to miss your plane tomorrow? It's possible. It's fine. He's going to be in the airplane bathroom, just be like, nobody bother me, nobody bother me. <laughs> That's four days, so much four days. dirtier than, oh, but I yeah. think it's because what's in my head. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, is what I'm saying here, yeah. That's what Maya Angelou used to do, because she had, like, kids as well. And so she would just rent a hotel room, and she would call the hotel and tell them to take out all of the pictures, like, strip the room so there was nothing for her to look at and all she would have is like a bible and probably a typewriter or computer and she would just write for four days <laughs> and they used to like crash into the room because she wouldn't have her sheets changed or anything and they're like miss angelo you're disgusting <laughs> no, they, no, they would say, say she was disgusting but they would be like we need to like take care of this room it's like we need to air it out but i always <laughs> Because she would be in there for four days just eating. Like, it's not. She'd be eating hard boiled eggs the whole time. Oh, God. (laughs) This is to read on Maya Angelou. Oh, Jesus. Just cut it all, (laughs) Clayton. I want a refrigerator full of hard boiled eggs. If I did not have my husband to come in and check in to see that I am breathing and conscious, then I would not have anybody to take away the, the coffee cups that would absolutely have, like, things growing on them and gnats and stuff like i mean it is not a cute experience this is why nobody is allowed in or out yeah because i mean it one it interrupts you like it's it's you're focused you got to get that done i you can't stop pouring it out or honestly i feel like if somebody tried to pull me out of it i would lose that i and i wouldn't be able to jump back oh, in yeah. and like i mean you're in it like i cannot hear people talking to me i don't hear the phone ring i mean it's I know it's like a fugue state. It's bizarre. So I, I mean, you're in I, flow. You're in what they call flow. I am in the treehouse. Yeah, that, that is where I'm at. That world is what's happening around me, and that that that's why the movie plays in the background. It's it's the volumes down, but if I need to look up, I see a story that I know playing across the screen, and it gives my brain like a minute to blink, and then back into the intensity of like. I mean, it's 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 a lot. Yeah. No, it makes sense, too, because you want something that you can listen to but don't need to pay attention to. Exactly. That's what I do sometimes. My trick is to put on a movie on Netflix in French so I don't <gasps> know what they're saying. It's just people are talking, so I'm not like – because if I'm by myself, I'm like, 
oh, somebody's yelling outside. What are they yelling about? Like, I'm like a Mrs. Kravitz. But if that's going on, then it's just something that is like I don't have to actually pay attention to. Yep, yep. I have it up just enough that I can hear it and, you know. But I will say it's gotten better since we moved from Indiana to Washington because it is dead-ass quiet on top of that mountain. Like, you wake up and you're in a cloud. And so, I mean, it it's great. There's no noise. It's awesome. awesome. Except when the coyotes come. Oh, no. But, it, you know, it sets the scene. It, like, gives a little bit of But then Tessa out. comes to life, and she fights the coyotes barehanded, and then she comes back, and everything's okay. In the thing, she's got, like, her dragon sword thing, and it's it's all very nice. But once <laughs> the coyotes get, get their sacrifice, they're happy. Well, it's fun because my son will talk to them. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. He will literally start howling, and then the coyotes will start howling back, and so now our whole family does it. Like, we stand at the window and howl, and we just talk to each other. Is that weird? No. That's awesome. You're communing oh, okay. with nature. I thought they started talking back. It was yeah. really cool. So <laughs> hey, I'm they like, started yeah. they, they started did. it. They started it. Now the wolves are like, no, there's another wolf family over there. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. what I think. Much, yeah, I think we have become one with the coyote clan because there's a bunch of them, and they just kind of roll together, and they come out beside our house at night and they make themselves known to call all their other coyote friends and my son just goes running out <laughs> that's so it's such a magical place to grow up it really is um so obviously we are a podcast that celebrates tropes okay crushing the a-list has some great tropes which is uh faking well fake relationship fake relationship celebrity uh hate to hey what's up exactly yeah. uh enemies to lovers what are your favorite tropes i am a a sucker for enemies to lovers like Mm -hmm. that is just my favorite one if it says that on a book buying it you know and i do like i i I really really do enjoy the oh we have gotten trapped in this house by a flood a blizzard and look there is only one bed bum Mm. bum bum yeah that one's i like that so oh yeah, much. force proximity is so good. It really is. I like that a lot. Um, but yeah, no, enemies to lovers. Enemies to lovers is like just. I mean, like ten things I hate about you is like the rom com of choice for me. That I, I when I saw that, I'm like, I want to write something that good. And yeah, that's sort of my, I don't know, guiding star for the enemies to lovers, and that's what hooked me on it. Uh, to put you on the spot because we didn't oh, ask you this me. ahead of time, um, what are some of your favorite enemy to lovers books? Oh God! Um, just not your favorite. Just a few. Um, this is this this is um, my comfort food for my brain. I love the um, Stephanie Plum series a lot because um, she's got these two dudes, Team Ranger, by the way, um, <laughs> and like Joe. They hate each other. Stephanie and Joe, like they knew each other in high school. And for many books, they hate each other, and then they sleep together, and then they hate each other again, and then they sleep together, and I just keeps going back and forth, and I'm like, she is giving me what I want with this series, and there's like 30 books of it, so mm-hmm. that's that's one that I go to often because I know what I'm going to get, and it's it's very satisfying. But um, uh, the hating game, the hating game is a recent one that uh, that was really well done. I thought that was that was very spectacular, and at the moment, I cannot think of anybody else's books and i feel like an ass um that's what i've got that's all i've got no, i'm sorry i'm no. sorry to all of my friends who have amazing enemies to lovers and i cannot think of them and i will as soon as i get back to my hotel i'm sorry yeah that was cruel we really shouldn't put you on the spot <laughs> like that i apologize uh, well, I, I in my defense i didn't do it 
<laughs> no, I like on the spot questions. Throw people off their axis a little bit. So, but yeah, I just feel bad because I know I have friends who have written amazing ones, and I cannot think of them right now. Well, the great thing is there's just so many. There's so many out there that it's very hard to to name all of them. Oh yeah, but yeah. Um, the the thing with enemies to lovers is the thing that's nice about that is that I think it's nice in a world where people are their first instinct is to kind of be mean to each other or to not have empathy for each other. Trusting, and then yeah. it can, yeah. But it shows that people can, even if it's not romantic love, people can learn to love each other if initially they might not have strong positive feelings towards somebody. And I think that's a really positive thing to have out in the world that, look, these people hate each other that now can love each other. Mm-hmm. Maybe people who dislike each other can like each other. I, honestly, that's why I like the enemies to lovers. I mean, it's fun when at the beginning when it sets up all that tension and you know that like these people are definitely going to jump in the sheets like 80 pages from now. But <laughs> um, my favorite part is watching it break down. And that's what I like writing because it's not about the fact that they hate each other. It's about what it takes to get them to see the little bits of humanity in the other person until they finally realize, like, oh, my God, like, I was kind of an ass about this. And, you know, I mean, honestly, in Crashing, that's 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 such a huge thing of, you know, Claire's in such a horrible place in her life, and she's getting a little bitter about things. And so everything, she has sort of this, you know, like, doom attitude about, including new people that she's meeting she's starting to just not trust anyone and you know that's kind of her arc is is trying to get out of that and stop doing that well and something else that i really loved about your book um is the friendship between clara and cc yeah they're so great and i think you really captured um an aspect of female friendship that I really love as far without it becoming without CC becoming like a caricature, like she'd still felt like a full person. Um, yeah. So do you want to talk a little bit about that? Why you added in a female friendship? Um, Clara needed the stability. She needed something that was an anchor for her that would keep pulling her back and reminding her that, you know, everything feels so awful. The world is ending. Everything's terrible. And she needed that person who would panic with her for a bit and then suddenly go, wait, okay, this isn't this bad and kind of pull Clara back from the brink. Um, You know, she's living with her brother and fiance, but she's so mortified by the situation. She tries not to go to them um, to, she always, like, she feels like she's already taking too much for them. And she also doesn't want to take that emotional energy away. And um, I think, you know, subconsciously that's not like written or anything, but to me it's canon that um, she's embarrassed and doesn't want to look like even more of a failure, quote unquote, like that she does to her little brother already. And so she has Cece and Cece is honestly my favorite character in the <laughs> world. I want a Cece. Um, but she she's just this wild sort of untamed but also deeply professional and you know she's got that grounding that she needs um to be sort of that ideal best friend for somebody who i mean for somebody anytime but especially somebody who's going through like the worst period of their life um i was i would love if people end up reading this book i would love to have a book that is all about Cece with uh Caspian and Clara in the background, and, but just seeing Cece and sort of like the orbit of all of that, but her story, I, I think Cece's great. 
do it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know, Just right? Write it. Wouldn't that be so much fun? Yeah. yeah, I'm trying to sell my publisher on that. I, 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 yeah. I think that would be a blast. Well, I love that, too, because I feel like when you read the old school romances, and obviously we're like a romance podcast, we're going to talk mostly about that genre, but I think in general, a lot about romance is sort of like modeling a world you want to see. And when you read these old school romances, it's a lot of like this woman and she was just so beautiful. And of course, she didn't know she was beautiful. And all the other women around her were so mean to her because she was beautiful, which is, you know, not something that happens. Mm -hmm. And then now when you read more modern one, it's more and more of the support system that she has. And it's sort of that modeling. So... Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, if you want to talk a little bit about sort of that rom-com romance or literature as modeling the world you want to see, if that's something you believe. No, I absolutely believe it. And I grew up reading things that ultimately make me feel bad, you know, and I, I feel like that probably spread to a lot of other people of, of, you know, like, Quite frankly, even women writers would sometimes do that, like, the white man writer meme thing right now of where her giant perky breast bounced boobily down the <laughs> stairs, you know? Like, it, oh, my God. It, it, was, it was supposed to set up, like, oh, look at this gorgeous woman about to have the sex with this gorgeous man. And it was just like, okay, but I don't look like that, and I'm never going to look like that. And... But again, like, it talks about her undying beauty. She is just a revelation. But then she's always like, I am so plain. I will never find love. This is so hard for me. And I'm like, okay. So it it's exhausting. But then, and there was always some woman who was fighting for the man's affection. So she had to, like, fight to the death with this woman because as plain as she was, she wanted this gorgeous man who would never love her. But still, I'm going to fight this bitch. You know, like, it just... <laughs> so I, I want to see, I want to see, you know, like there are good female relationships in life. There are good, you know, like male and female relationships. And I, I don't think there always has to be some horrifying conflict where you like fall out with your best friend and only get back together once you've gotten with a guy. You know what I mean? Like that stuff is just, I mean, no offense to the people that, that write that kind of thing or enjoy that sort of thing. But for me, it's... I mean, it, a little offense. I mean, you know, I, I feel it's really problematic at this point. We know better. Like, we we should be doing better. The world is a trash fire. Everybody is pissed all the time. Everybody is stressed out. I, I call romantic comedies, like, my books are mac and cheese for your brain. You know, something that you can step away from in the real world and just... You know, have a laugh, have a swoon, like escape into something that feels good. And so if you're going to be writing something that people escape, I mean, you can absolutely tackle all the serious issues in there. But let's get away from the like girl on girl hatred and the plain chick who doesn't know she's beautiful. I want to see a woman who, you know, she might have a day where she's like, oh, God, I'm so gross. Has a best friend that steps in and say, bitch, you are gorgeous, you know. But then on another day, she looks in the mirror. She's like, you know, I look really good. I'm about to go get this guy, you know. <laughs> I mean, like, we need to see that so bad. And, and yeah, I, I, I really, really encourage people to write women who are very well-rounded and, and realistic and, and normal and have those up-and-down thoughts about themselves. But if they're constantly thinking negative about themselves, it seeps into the brains of the readers. And I think that's dangerous, and I think we know better than to do that now. Well, it's interesting because uh, a lot of people, you know, the criticism of romance in general is that it's lightweight and things like that, which rude. I is very rude. And, and having read a ton now, I know that is not the case. Mm -hmm. The thing about what you're saying, like mac and cheese for the brain and all these things, it, it is an escape, but also it's 
when you're writing the way you, you're saying that people are writing now with like aspirational, like this is what I want to see in the world. It's it's subtly modeling behavior for people. So once you start reading a lot of these, yeah, you're going to feel good and you're going to have this. Wow, that was a great experience and it wasn't too dark and heavy. But there's those things that they're going to just unconsciously pick up that this is the kind of friend that I want to have. This is the kind of relationship I want to have. This is the kind of man I want in my life, or this is the kind of woman I want in my life. So that's the thing is like, there's so much power in subtlety. It doesn't have to knock you over the head with what you should think or what you shouldn't think. If it, if, you know, pop culture is now our culture, if you're modeling these behaviors, then people will start to act that way and want those things. That's exactly what I think. I mean, you're picking everything up subconsciously as you go. And right now, like if you walk outside, if you go online, you are being bombarded by, oh my God, the world is on fire, we're all going to die, which is a lot. So that's what makes romance books so amazing. You know, like you are guaranteed a satisfying happily ever after, you know, like it's the law. So it's like you get to (laughs) turn off that scared part of your brain. So it's even if you're reading about really, really heavy, heavy stuff, you know, you're guaranteed that I'm going to feel better when I'm done reading this. So I think putting in that other stuff, like your guard is down knowing happily ever after. And so putting in that subtle positivity and again, not beating people over the head with it. Like we're not writing like giant mission statements to shove on people, but you know, like the relationship with Claire and Cece, they they would totally, you know, like if one of them said, hey, I got a problem, the other one would be like, I've got a shovel and an alibi, I'm here for you. <laughs> and, you know, but there are times when, like, they have to be extremely real with each other and get a little frustrated that the other one is being really stubborn, stuff like that. But that's real. That's really how friendships can go. But if all you ever see are the bad ones, you're going to think that's the kind of friend you have to be to people. I would rather have people see... You know, Cece, Clara, any of the women from my first book and be like, that's the kind of friend I want. And that's the kind of friend I want to be. So how can people find you? Obviously, everybody buy Crashing the A-List. Yes, please buy Crashing the A-List. I I am a big fan of people buying Crashing the Mm A-List. And if you want to pick up Awkward Path to Getting Lucky, by all means, it's got cupcake recipes in the back. Go with God. There you go. Um, I know. You do. You hate it. The cupcakes are the tits. Um... (laughs) Uh, you yeah. should do that for all your books. Just put like one great recipe at the end. I so almost did in this book <laughs> just for consistency. I'm like, what did I make in here? But really, it's like sunflower seeds was like the main focal point of food. So that uh, that wasn't as yeah. The next uh, the next edition. Yeah, next we'll have one. sunflower seeds. Actually, um, I, I wanted to write this like a kind of like the Babysitters Club with the four women from Awkward Path and have you know all those things and different recipes for each character yeah whatever um so yeah please buy my books because i work really hard on them and i go through quite frankly a manic craze state to write them for you so please um and then if you wish to find me after hearing the nonsense that i just spewed um i am on twitter as fizzy uh g-r-r-l fizzy girl but see, I'm bubbly and cute, but I will also scratch your eyes out if I need to. So fizzy girl. Um, and then also on Twitter and Facebook with the same name. And uh, I always like to respond to people. I love when people reach out. I always feel like, you know, on Twitter, Facebook, wherever, um, someone takes the time to say, hey, I enjoyed this thing you created. The, the least I can do is write back and say, oh, my God, thank you for taking the time out of your day to tell me that because that's fantastic. So anyway. 
I respond is what I'm saying. God, I'm so long-winded about everything. We will also make sure to add all that in the show notes, so you should be able to sort of just click if you want to follow um, Summer Heacock on any of those platforms. Thank you, because if you accidentally write in, like, fizzygirl.com, you are going to get something that you will regret. All right, everybody. So thanks so much again for, for joining us. This was so much fun. Yeah, thank uh, you so much. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Honestly, total pleasure to be here. And um, all right, everybody, and we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.